Today, we have a special full episode of Season 1 of Under Our Feet. This whole series, we've heard stories from mostly scientists about how the landscape of Wisconsin came to be over the past two billion years. Now we're going to do something different. We'll hear stories from the Menominee Nation that touch on many of the geologic stories we've covered so far. Stick around to hear more. You won't want to miss it. Under Our Feet is supported by generous subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to some of our most recent, Rita Stevens, Daniel Pauly, Teresa Molinick, and Carl Simmerman. You can help support the show too and get cool rewards. There's a link at our website, uofpod.org. That's the letters uofpod.org. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to discover the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. I'm your host, Rudy Molinick, and this is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. Something I came to realize making this episode and this whole podcast series is that science is only part of the picture. Fundamentally, science is just a way that we try to make sense of the world. But because geologists and other scientists imagine that we can be objective, that we can separate ourselves and our position in the world from the work that we do, that doesn't make geology more valid than other ways people try and have tried to understand how the Earth got to be the way it is. Even geologists have values that shape the questions we ask and the answers we find. But no matter what, whether you're a geologist or not, you're probably thinking about these questions and answers in the form of stories. So to explore this idea, and to learn more about the geologic stories that I thought I knew after making this podcast season, I talked to someone who's a natural storyteller, who keeps up with the most recent scientific literature including geology, but who also brings a deep knowledge of the landscape, plant communities, and cultural traditions of his Menominee heritage. My name's Jeff Greenell. My name, Menominee name is Pomopame, means seen going by, walking by. I'm Wolf Deer and Dog Clan here for the Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin. I've worked at the forestry for 32 years. I've had a lot of cultural education from a very early age because of my clan, being Wolf Clan, that's, that has to deal with natural resources, the environment, understanding what's going on there. So I had a lot of elders that came up and gave me information from a very young age, you know, five, six years old on up. Uh, hard education in, in the natural environment. But this, it wasn't the path Jeff thought he wanted to follow. And the history that Menominees have witnessed over those hundreds of thousands of years here in northeastern Wisconsin. I took that education, and being a young guy, I just pushed it aside and forgot about it, thinking, I don't want to do this. I want to go to school, formal school. So I went to the University of Minnesota out of high school, got into engineering school, went for aerospace engineering, did two and a half years. Turns out, though, aerospace engineering was missing something that Jeff needed. Two and a half miserable years. Uh, I was making a grade, but I wasn't happy. I didn't like the competition in that type of field. 
And then I would have had to move away from this area. That upbringing was pulling me back, in other words. So I came back to the reservation, dropped out, um, went back to school for forest management at UW Stevens Point. Uh, came back, got a job in forestry. That was 32 years ago. In between, I've been doing Western Fire for 20 years, uh, all the Western states and Southern states. To Jeff, despite the changes in direction, none of that time was wasted. It all comes together as, as education, the way I see it. You know what I mean? The aerospace engineering, the, the experience on fire, the cultural teachings I had at a young age. You know, it all brings everything together. And once it came together, all that varied experience shaped Jeff's worldview. And the way he approaches science, including geologic knowledge of the area around the Menominee Reservation in northeastern Wisconsin. The past 20 years I've been focusing hard on bringing that cultural teachings to the forefront, letting it lead because it's more advanced than modern science right now. Let that lead and then take the science and bring it in behind and, and prove what's what I'm laying out as cultural teaching. So basically, um, my motto is, you know, using the cultural teachings and um, using scientific tools to, to back that up. So. so this episode, that's what we're going to do. If you've been listening this long to Under Our Feet, you've heard plenty of stories that lead with the science. Jeff reorients us today and helps us see that even if science has a role to play, it need not lead our approach. In fact, for those of us trained to believe that we are objective, relying too heavily or relying unquestioningly on the scientific method can hinder us in our overall goal, to gain understanding of how the Earth works. And you're coming at it at a wrong direction. You can't come at it as if you're towering above it and studying it and, you know, you're above and beyond what it is. You have to come in as an equal with the plants and the below ground environment too, because that's part of the community too. So, so that's kind of the basic, that's the first number one rule. You shed that mentality, that human perception. I'm, you know, trying to reflect it on what you're seeing. So that's what I want to do in this episode, to try to go beyond my scientific training as a geologist and, with Jeff, reflect on this landscape that I've made it my goal in this podcast season to understand. Like I said at the start, we all tend to think in stories. So what are the stories that Jeff tells and that he's heard? And how can we tie these into the geologic stories we've been learning about all season long? What popped into my mind when we were talking about earlier is the, the stories. The original origin story of Menominee, um, you can look, look online and find what says an origin story of Menominee, talking about the great bear rising from below ground and walking up the Menominee River. But in reality, that's only a part of the orig origin story. There is, there is at least four to five sections of that story. When it was first told to me a long, long time ago, when I was very young, it, it took four days, you know, you know, three, four hour days to tell the entire story. And it, 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 in the sections, 
One section talks about the origin of the earth. One section talks about how life moved throughout the universe. Um, another section talked about the one that's online talks about how Menominee's recognized diversity after the glacial event, the last prior uh, glacial event. And there's another section on uh, how we interacted together as people. So the Menominee origin story starts with rock, earth, and then goes into plants, animals, and people. Once created, these all became one community, interdependent and connected intimately to each other. You know, there's a lot of purpose in the rock. The rock is a part. Is in Menominee, the the rock is the grandfather. It's it's been there for the longest. It's animate. It's um. It's a part of the ecosystem. It's a part of the plant communities themselves. You know, I talk about plants, but it's the entire. You know, the there's community after community built within the elder plant community, starting from below ground to the above ground plants to the the insects themselves to the animals, and in some cases humans. So let's talk about the rocks. The geologic landscape of the Menominee is, in large part, shaped by ice, by the glaciers that we heard about back in episode 8. But we don't have to take a geologist's word for it, because it turns out that the Menominee have a cultural memory and a story about those glaciers. You know, there's another story that talks about the glacier appearing, um, how Menominees were surprised. They were right out in front of the glacier, and they were surprised to see it come because they seen active growing forests growing above the ice as it was moving in. And I, I have to interpret that as the boreal forest from Canada must have been scooped up by the glacier, and they had a hole. They were confused because they had the, the forest areas that they were living in, and then there's another forest area moving in at a high altitude, you know. And then uh, it, the story goes on and it talks about how the Menominees were very sad with the white pine communities. They were very sad because the maple communities couldn't stand the transition of coal from that glacier. So they had to reluctantly move their communities southward. So they left the area. And the Menominees had a hard time transitioning because half of their food, half of their medicine moved southward with those communities. They were just with the white pine. And in this new uh, boreal forest that was on top of the ice, you know, so they had to relearn medicines. They had to, um, and they had pretty rough times moving back and forth. That's why I think Menominees have such a close uh, relationship with white pine to this day because that white pine stayed with them and made it through, you know what I mean? Because the physiology of a white pine is a lot different than a sugar maple, you know? They can stand the cold as opposed to the sugar maple. I just want to point out that it took geologists until the 19th century to figure out that ice was responsible for shaping the landscape of Wisconsin. But here we have a part of the Menominee origin story that shows their cultural memory has known it for generations. So, what changes in the landscape do we see on the Menominee Reservation because of that ice sheet in Jeff's story? 
roughly 100, 110,000 years ago, the Laurentide ice sheet came down through Lake Michigan, um, through that ancient river system that was Lake Michigan before it was a lake. It came down and then it expanded westward, um, entered the reservation here in northeastern Wisconsin from the southeast end, pushed all the way across to the west, northwest corner of the Menominee Reservation and off, and then it receded. Then it readvanced slightly to a position about three quarters of the way through the reservation, and then it did a series of pushes and retreats where it stepped back back and forth, um, grinding the earth down um, until it went off the reservation to the east and it readvanced again to what the Wolf River area is, roughly. And then it uh, receded for the final time. So ice from the Lake Michigan lobe of the North American ice sheet swept back and forth across what is now the Menominee Reservation. And just so you know, the Menominee Reservation is in northeast Wisconsin, between Wausau and Green Bay. If you look at a satellite map of Wisconsin, you can actually pick it out pretty easily. It's a nearly perfect square of darker green than the surrounding land. That's because of the careful and intentional forestry program the nation runs, and of which Jeff has been a large part over the last 30 years. Anyways, that ice moving back and forth across the region was responding to variations in Earth's climate, as it grew and retreated, with most of those oscillations on the eastern side of the reservation. During that, the loose, weaker rocks near the surface were scoured away, and the glaciers ground down to the Wolf River batholith. If you remember way back to episode 2, we learned from Gordy Medeiros that this batholith, or a large body of igneous rock that cooled from milt down below the Earth's surface, is related to the mountain-building event that created the Baraboo Hills almost one and a half billion years ago. But as you've been hearing from Jeff, the story of rocks doesn't stop at the boundaries of those rocks. Everything is interconnected, from rock, to soil, to plants and insects, to animals, and even to us people. Everything that we do nowadays is based on what happened with that glacier long ago. Even the archaeology that I I try to identify on the reservation is tied to what happened on that that glacial event. So um, when you get to the Wolf River Batholith area, it's it's the most amazing because it's the granite rock, uh, the bedrock there. Um, All 54 types of soil are built off of that granite bedrock of that Wolf River Batholith. And the diversity of forest and plant communities that you see on the forest here is based on what that glacier did long ago. So it actually diversified the area because of how, how much movement it had back and forth, you know, the scouring and the pushing down. And and it's, it's pretty amazing because of the diversity you have. You know, you have totally different plant life on the eastern side as opposed to the western side where you only had one basically one glacial movement and then a retreat off of there. The glacial movement scoured down to the Wolf River Batholith bedrock, and from that bedrock, an incredible diversity of soils developed. In turn, that led to patterns in plant communities that goes back to the glacial history. I think a lot of it had, there's purpose in that glacial event where it moved rock, because a lot of rock moved from Canada down here. 
in certain areas. And a lot of it was deposited where the maples are. And rock is not just rock. Nutrients come off the rock. It's, it's weathered off the rock into the soil and actively participates in the soil. So a lot of that Canadian rock was deposited in the maple areas as opposed to anywhere else on the reservation as you go eastward. There's a purpose there. I think a lot of that, a lot of the grinding, and I talked about where the glacier advanced, retreated, you know, series of, what did they, series of pushes and retreats, they used to be the term. It scoured that down, uh, scoured the rock down. Certain types of plant communities now grow in that area that don't grow anywhere else on the reservation, so. But the influence of glaciers doesn't stop there. As glaciers retreat, they can form large lakes on their edges, fed by the water melting off the ice and dammed up by remnant ice and debris. Several of these covered large swaths of Wisconsin during the last glacial melting period. But they're ephemeral lakes and can drain catastrophically when the dams fail. You might remember a story about that from Episode 9, about how the Wisconsin River Valley through the Driftless Area was carved out by one of those mega-floods. These lakes are part of the Menominee cultural memory, too. And as it receded, the glacial meltwater formed Glacial Lake Oshkosh on the eastern side of the Menominee Reservation. And actually, in the story, I came up, I found the name that Menominee's called that Glacial Lake. Uh, what is it? Quesosaset. Quesosaset Kachikum, which means um, sun that's painted on the rocks on the edges of that glacial lake. And there's a whole story about it. But anyway, that glacial lake formed on the eastern side of the Menominee Reservation and eventually the dams gave way and it, it flowed southward so, and south and eastward. And Jeff, with his archaeological observations, has found even more evidence that the Menominee were around while these lakes and ice sheets were covering the landscape. This story involves the paths people have walked across the land that skilled observers like Jeff can still trace even hundreds or thousands of years later. Basically, it, it, I tracked a trail system here on the reservation just for the ar archaeological sites so I could lay that trail system down and kind of understand more information of the placement, why people lived where they did, you know, and... And once I tracked that trail system, I got just happened to meet some people off the reservation, some dedicated retired people that, that had tracked the trail system north and south of the reservation. And I was kind of like the missing piece that I was, I was the big man because I could bring in the missing piece for their, their, uh, their research. And but it's basically a trail system that runs from you know Chicago area as far as we tracked it uh, meets a main trail system that runs east and west across the nation. The trail system runs up north to to Fort Howard and Green Bay, and then it makes a northwest turn, comes up to the reservation here on Menominee, and it splits in the middle of the reservation. One trail system goes to the St. Lawrence River and crosses into Canada. Another trail system runs uh, northwestward to the west side of Lake Superior. 
but the fascinating thing about that trail system is I was able, pretty much able to date that as an older trail system, not only because of the glacial movement, but because the trail system tracks up and it doesn't go right to the western shore of Lake Superior, which you'd think, you know what I mean, the shortest route to get to northern Canada. It it tracks to the glacial outwash of the the glacier. Um, uh, I forgot the name of the lake. Um, yeah, Lake Duluth, yes. Yes, it goes to that shoreline, and then it goes north to Canada. So... So can reliably date that, you know what I mean? To you know, somewhere in the teens, thousands of years, you know, sixteen thousand, fifteen, depending on when when that glacial melt happened. So that's that's an older trail that was most likely established when the glacial period was still occurring here. So that was the Western Trail. Instead of tracing outlines of the modern geography, making the shortest path to Lake Superior. This path follows the outline of one of those ancient glacial lakes, in this case called Glacial Lake Duluth, which hasn't existed as a body of water since about 14,000 years ago. And here, Jeff's stories, and in fact, the other one of the trails he's traced, intersects with another of the geologic stories from this podcast. And then the, the Eastern Trail is pretty interesting because um, I've tracked it up far as uh, past the Menominee River, then then there's another trail system that goes off of that and heads to the Keweenaw Peninsula. Does that sound familiar? If you heard episode three about copper on Michigan's Upper Peninsula and the Mid-Continent Rift, you know what the Keweenaw Peninsula is. It's the Upper Peninsula's Upper Peninsula, and it's where a copper mining boom in the 19th and early 20th century turned a remote landscape into an industrial center that powered the dawn of the electrical age but those European settlers weren't the first people to mine that copper. Here's Jeff with the story. Now, I've got evidence that um, in the old stories, it talks about Menominees having a battle with the original mound builders. And we forced the original mound builders out of the area. Now, um, if you look on the archaeological map, uh, there was a large settlement, uh, Middle Mississippian settlement um, of Cahokia, they call it, in southern Illinois. Weird setup. They're not traditional native tribes from this area. You know, they had active plazas where ceremonies were performed. Um, they had these huge mounds that were built, stoneworks, that sort of thing. Um and then you got another site between Madison and Milwaukee called Astalon, which present um, belief is that the people of Cahokia moved to a northern outpost at Astalon. Now, Menomines have um, a name for those people. It's called Wapat Mamachita. It means the troublesome people. The original European settlers talked about how Astalon looked so much like Aztec um, type of um, landscape and their type of, you know what I mean, their type of sites and cities. We had a battle with them and they were forced out of there. But the interesting thing is that we got along with these people in the beginning. 
And their name in the beginning, from what I was told, was Osawa, Mamachito, the copper people. So whatever group was there, you know, I believe it's Aztec. But whatever group was there was most likely or possibly mining copper in the Keweenaw Peninsula. Which brings us back to the trail systems. Now, in order to mine copper in the Keweenaw Peninsula of North, northern Michigan, you had to go through Menominee Territory to get to it through the trail system. Using that eastern trail, the trail that goes off of that eastern eastern side of Lake Superior Trail, and it goes to the Keweenaw Peninsula. So was that group mining copper, that pure copper that came from that Keweenaw Rift area up there? Like with the glaciers shaping patterns of movements around Wisconsin, copper is another example of geology being part of the community that the Menominee lived amongst, and of how stories help form and reinforce that idea of more-than-human community. And as this story continues, it illustrates how narratives don't just let us make sense of the past, they can also shape how we imagine the future. Way back, roughly the age that the mining could be 7,000 years ago when that active mining first occurred on Keweenaw Peninsula. Then that fits in nicely with the Copper Age of the Menominee, where um, we were suddenly awash in copper, you know what I mean? We had tools and, you know what I mean, fine jewelry and that sort of thing, right around that age, 7,000. So the Menominee had a Copper Age, but they weren't the miners that extracted it. More likely it came with trade from those people that used the trail to travel from Cahokia up to the Keweenaw. That's so foreign to Menominee because we would not dig. We wouldn't even harvest mushrooms or the fungi because of what it would do with the below-ground environments. And, And I've talked a lot of that in my past talks about that sacred underground not being disturbed. Um, We would never actively open up a mine, no matter how shallow it was, you know, just out of respect. And the neighboring tribes are also that way. So whoever was south of us, it was somebody different. And that brings us to the present and into the future. I tell students and when I do talks, talk about a term that was taught to me, Napanopamechwan. It's a way of understanding the environment. It's a repeating pattern throughout the environment. That repeating pattern's not only in the environment, but it's also in our behaviors. So we're reliving exactly what happened possibly 7,000 years ago with the present mining and, you know, situation. You have foreigners coming in, trying to get extract some um, resource from below ground. We don't believe in disturbing it that way, you know. So we're repeating that history. It's a repeating pattern that, that we'll probably face in the future, too. So, Because just like 7,000 years ago and the troublesome people, the Menominee have in the recent past had experience with settlers arriving and mining into the sacred underground. That and the prospect of more extraction continue to this day and into the future. But we'll we'll fight it as long, you know what I mean? We'll never give in and accept any, you know, benefits from it, you know? 
because that we believe that sacred, you know. So we've started to see how stories and geology interact, and how Jeff leads with his Menominee cultural teachings to put scientific knowledge in a context specific to the land he knows well. Love science. I read, you know, I I get um, updates on the latest scientific papers and fields that I'm interested in, and I, and I'll read the scientific papers, you know, daily. But you know what I mean? That's not the way to go about learning and, and integrating into the environment in a sustainable way. You need to bring in those cultural teachings, not only Menominee, but the European cultures, the Asian cultures, that sort of thing. There's a lot to be learned by those old people. They're, they were so in touch, so uh, sensitive to what was going on in the environment. You know, we spend so much time in these square rooms like we're in right now, you know, away from nature they lived in it 24 7 you know they had a special way of perceiving nature um using all their all the available knowledge that came to them be it uh through emotions through uh, feelings through all the senses and they used that to fashion their cultural knowledge that that ultimately granted them survival because they were facing, you know what I mean? If you don't do this for yourself, you're not going to last very long. So, you know, I, I'm not quick to disregard that knowledge that they have. I like to bring that in and then bring science together with it. But how do we get there to a place where we can successfully bring direct learning from the environment and inherited lessons into meaningful conversation with what we learn from sciences like geology? One way to start is to create that direct experience for yourself. Well, it, it, what it comes down to is practicing it every day, um, being attuned to your senses. You know, you have your, you know, you have your sight, your smell, your hearing, your taste, your feeling in the hands, but then you have the feeling in your heart, in your your body, basically. Um, I use the example of you walk into a certain type of house. You can tell if it was a good house or or a house that you kind of feel uncomfortable in. Um, A house, an inanimate object has feelings just like the environment does. Um, Now you take going into the environment. um, Say you you, um, walking in the woods and you come face to face with a wolf. That wildness in the wolf that taken in as a feeling within your body um, that's taken in and has a different type of feeling than it does if you go home and your your little puppy comes running up to you and you pick it up and start petting it. There's a totally different feeling sense on that that type of situation. It's no different than being in the forest. Certain plants have different feelings. Um, certain trees have different feelings, certain areas, ecosystems have different feelings, certain areas where different glacial features happen have different feelings. Um, it's just 
working on getting that um, fine tuning, that sensibility to take that in and recognize and then use it as a memory or store it in a library inside you for the next time you're out. You know, that's, that fine tunes your sensibility. And that's kind of what those elders long ago used to do. They practice that daily. And in order to do that, as Jeff said a few minutes ago, it's important to get away from the human structures. That's something else Jeff learned from his archaeological observations on the reservation. I use the example of Menominee medicine people. Um, when I'm doing archaeology here on the reservation, preserving areas, if I find a summer settlement area where the gardening took place during the summer, it's a large settlement where all the groups came together, um, like a like a small city, basically. All the groups came together to farm, and then they split in the fall time and, and winter time. But in these large summer settlement areas, when you find them in the burial areas, there's always a spot where the medicine people practice. And is usually, uh, on average, it's at least a mile, mile and a half away from the main settlement area. So if I find the main settlement area, I'll look a mile and a half away, and I'll usually find the medicine area because it'll be a small area where one person, single person was living. But that, the reason for that is they stayed away from the main group of people because they didn't want the influences of the human orientation or human, you know, placing the orientation of humans on the environment that that muddies the picture, that sensibility they have with the plants and the environment. So they purposely stayed away in order to fine-tune that, you know, that sensibility. And from this, Jeff and the elders he learned from developed a relationship with the land and plants and animals. And the wonderful thing about that, you know, that um, orientation, that perception, that feeling sense is um, it uses science. When those those elders long ago, one elder taught me to, um, he taught me the concept of how Menominee's understood the forest as elder plant communities. And he told me to pick out an area, an elder plant community, and keep coming back to it throughout your lifetime and then become a part of that community, you know, an active, productive member in that community. And that's basically doing a scientific plot, you know, a fixed area plot, studying the area. But over, for my, in my case, it's been 52 years I've been going back to that same community, watching the transition of plants and, you know, being an active part of that community. If I reach down and touch a plant, it'll it'll affect that plant for a long time afterwards. Just my touch, not only the feeling of myself with that plant, but the actual what I leave with the touch. So it all goes to making those communities more stronger and more healthier yeah, in place. Yeah. Which brings us to a final lesson. When you get older, you, you should... And gain all the experience, you should try to regain that mentality or that way of looking at things as a child. Because when you interacted as a child with the environment, it was no problem. You'd talk to the environment, you'd talk to the rock in your hand, you know what I mean? That would be your friend. 
and it would talk back to you. It was teaching you something. Then, then you get older and more experienced, and you close things off. Like you know what I mean? Being objective, not being part of part of what you're observing. You know, you lose that contact. But when you get older, for me in particular, is I fight to get back that child mentality of looking at things in wonder and not knowing everything or, you know what I mean? Or, and don't forget to look up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because <laughs> people are so focused, you know what I mean, in their little situations from day, you know, throughout the day that nobody ever takes time to look up. You know, it's a metaphor, you know what I mean? Look around, you know. See what take in everything with your senses, with your observation, because I always push the students to be able to to go from the scientific mindset to being able to step back and then take everything in with all their senses, understand what's going on all around you, and then go back in and focus on what you're studying yeah. or observing. You know what I mean? You get more information that way. Don't forget to look up. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Kate Flick for helping set up this interview and for being a great supporter of the work we do on Under Our Feet. Thanks as well to the College of Menominee Nation's Sustainable Development Institute for hosting this conversation. And thanks to Tom, Katie, and Claude, who were all part of this interview. And what you heard today is really just the start of what I learned from Jeff. Soon, I'll post a fuller version of my conversation with Jeff Greeno. Also, in the show notes, I'll list to a podcast from EdgeFX and an essay with Robin Wall Kimmerer that Jeff has also been a part of, if you want to learn more from him. Thanks, Jeff, for this interview and all the work you do. That's it for Season 1. Stay tuned for more from Under Our Feet as we develop Season 2.